Remember, there's a um, there's a guy, there's a boy who uses God's name in vain and goes to Moses and says, or Moses finds out about it. Moses goes to God. What should we do about this guy using your name in vain? God says, well, stop. And that's what it's talking about there. 500 years ago, they weren't very politically correct, which is very refreshing at times. So that's the Heidelberg Catechism. Nothing, nothing wrong with, with uh, reforming back to the reformers who were reforming back to the scriptures. Nothing wrong with that. So, all right. So Mark chapter 11 is where we are today. And, uh, and this is, I mean, this is some of my favorite stuff as far as when you start looking at what's going on. Once Christ enters into, into Jerusalem, there is a, there's a shift as we saw last week. There's a shift because now Christ is openly declaring, uh, I won't say war, but he is definitely saying, hey, you are the nemesis. You guys are the bad guys. The king is now here. And here's what's going to happen. And so that's what you have when you look at Mark chapter 11. Now, this is so if you've ever so we're this is verse 11. But if you've ever you'll, you'll, you'll recognize some of this. The thing is, is that from 11 down to really 26. All of this goes together, but there's a there's a catch here. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at today 11 through 14, chapter 11, verse 11 through 14, and then we're going to skip this part 15 through 19 because that's when Christ enters into the temple and starts overturning the money changers. And I'll tell you why we're going to come back to that. And then we're going to skip down to verse 20, and we're going to cover 20 and 21 because that's all of what we're looking at today has to do with the fig tree. Okay, so let's read through this, and then I'll be able to explain it a little better once you see it. Okay, so verse 11, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples were listening. And then again, this next part deals with the money changers. Let's read it. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, this is not written. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him for they were afraid of him for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Verse 19, when evening came, they would go out of the city. As they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to them, have faith in God, etc. And that's the, the next part that we'll look at. So all of this goes together. But today we're looking at what's called this miracle of destruction. And it's amazing because people have looked at this, this, this idea that Christ goes to this fig tree and and blast the fig tree with the curse. There have been people in the history of humanity, not uh, usually not Christians, but let's say a guy like Bertrand Russell in the early 1900s. And they look at passages like this, and they said, there's no way this happened because Jesus would never curse a fig tree. What did the, in other words, he's like, what, what did the fig tree do? Why would Jesus curse the fig tree? The fig tree did nothing wrong, right? And the problem with that interpretation is the fact that they completely misunderstand what Christ is doing when he curses the fig tree. This is a parable. This is pointing to something else. Namely what? What was going to take place 
in the temple. Okay, so here's another way to say it. This, and another way to say it is this. This is a parable of a parable. Okay, when Christ goes into the temple, as we'll see, and he starts overturning the money changers. And you see this, right? I mean, this is a very memorable scene. In John, it talks about how he ties together this cord of whips and he goes in there. He, he go, in John, it says he goes in there twice. And we'll see why, why John says that in a minute. But the point is, is that is a very memorable scene. We all understand that. That's when you'll, you'll hear the phrase flipping tables. You know, when Jesus would be flipping tables. Jesus flips tables. And he does flip tables. When he flips those tables, though, that itself is a parable of the destruction that's to take place to Jerusalem and especially the temple in AD 70. So what he's talking about here, that's why I said this is a parable of what he's about to do in the temple. This describes what takes place in the temple. Okay? What he does to the victory describes what is going to happen and what he means to say about the temple. Okay, And if that doesn't make sense, I think it will as we go through here. Okay, In other words, this is the whole sandwich technique. You know, Mark uses a lot of sandwich. So it's in other words, he'll give you, he'll give you a, a, he'll give you, it's like an ABA pattern. So fig tree, temple, fig tree. It's very intentional here. Okay, that's what we have here. So let's look at this. So number, verse 11, he enters into Jerusalem. That's the first thing. Remember last week we talked about how he doesn't enter into Jerusalem last week or when he comes to the triumphant entry. That, he comes into Jerusalem for the first time in verse 11. And the first thing he does, now this is strange. Or is it? It kind of seems strange. Look at verse 11. He enters Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. He just comes and looks at it. That's all you have in the scriptures, right? He just comes and checks things out, scopes things out. And then he leaves. Why does he do that? That's a very, you know, again, I mean, Mark is not, everything that Mark gives us is very intentional. He's not just giving us extra information that we don't need to know. He's trying, everything in Mark is like, hey, I'm, tell, I'm trying to tell you something. This is important. When he goes in and he looks around at everything, he checks it out. This is the inspection of the temple. Every time before God judges and destroys something, you know what God does? He comes and inspects it first. Every single time he inspects it. You have the idea, and we'll cover this um, in a few weeks especially, but this, this, the jealousy inspection in Leviticus 14, the priest goes into this house and he checks for leprosy. And if there's leprosy in the house, he doesn't just destroy it right away. He comes back the second time and inspects it. That's why John gives us two entrances of Jesus into the temple. He flips tables twice. Why? Because there's two inspections. Here Jesus is going. He's inspecting the temple. He is seeing if the temple is functioning in the way that it's meant to function. Is the intended purpose of the temple being fulfilled? He's inspecting things. And if not, he will consign it to judgment. He is Yahweh. He is the Lord of the universe. And so he's going and checking things out in the temple. Think of it. I'll give you a few examples here. But... The Tower of Babel, if you go to Genesis 11, don't worry about going there, but I'm just summarizing. Genesis 11, remember the Tower of Babel. You have a lot of different people, and they're trying to make a name for themselves, and they're trying to supplant God by building a tower up to God to dethrone God. They're, 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 trying, to, they're trying to basically take God's place. And before, they, before God comes in and destroys them, it says, or scatters them and confuses their language, Genesis 11 verse 5 says, Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the men had built. Well, it's not like God couldn't see it from heaven, right? This is telling us something. He's inspecting it. Same thing with Sodom and Gomorrah. We all know what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, before that happens to Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire and brimstone, 
The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. I will go down now and see, God says. I'm going to go inspect this. I'm going to check this out first. That's what Jesus is doing here. This is not just some kind of random action of Jesus. But it is strange, right? If you're just reading through there, you're like, well, that kind of, all right. Kind of like a wasted trip, right? Because he goes, look, he goes into Jerusalem. Remember, they just had a trek 15. So remember, we, we talked about 800 feet beneath sea, sea level is Jericho. Jerusalem, what was it, 3,000 feet above sea level is 15 miles apart. So you're basically trekking directly uphill. And when you get there, he goes into Jerusalem to check out the temple just to look at things. And then he goes outside of Jerusalem again. That's like a wasted trip. Unless there's meaning behind it. And there is meaning behind it. He's inspecting it. He's consigning it. He's seeing what's going on. And here's, here's the other thing. Don't we know? I mean, we know this about the scriptures. We know this in Revelation, for instance. Revelation, if you go through the first, we all know about the churches in Revelation. Revelation 2 and 3. You have the church in Laodicea. You have the church in Sardis. You have the church in Philadelphia. All these churches, right? Well, if you notice what's going on there in the language, we don't have time to go through there and dissect everything. But if you notice, it's very similar. Christ is there and he's saying, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. What's he doing? He's inspecting. Christ inspects us. Christ inspects churches. Christ inspects homes. Christ inspects us as people. Christ, Christ is a God is a God who inspects. He, he's a God who inspects nations. He checks out what's going on in these nations. He looks at Babylon. He looks at Assyria. He looks at America. He knows that, you know, this is why in the Bible it talks about how God's eyes, they run to and fro throughout the earth. God is aware of what's going on, right? And so that's what's going on here, and especially in the temple. I mean, this is the heart of the religious system. And so Christ is going in here to inspect the white because he's Lord of the temple. That's why it's his prerogative. That's why it's his right to inspect this. He's the judge of the temple. He's the Lord of the temple. He's the judge of the nations. So it's right for him to inspect the nations. He's Lord over every person, over every human being, whether they've been the near or not. He's their Lord. So it's right for him to go and inspect homes and inspect. I mean, the church, of course, is his. So it's right for him to inspect the church. Right. That's why everything is how we do things. It matters. It's critical. We want to do things that are pleasing to God in the church, in our homes, with our children, at work. He inspects. He's a God who inspects. He inspects our fruit. Is the intended purpose being fulfilled? And of course, you could look at that. And it is. It's like, well, that's frightening. Thankfully, we have the gospel, though. Thankfully, Christ was perfect. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. We just read that, that we don't do that, right? But Christ does. So we can look to Christ. We can continue to repent and turn back to Christ. Lord, have mercy on me. And asking God to help us, right? I mean, look, when it comes to the temple, you know, the temple system, what they should have done is repented, right? They should have turned to Christ. They should have recognize certain things regarding what the sacrifices and everything was about. But they don't. The Messiah is on the ground. They reject the Messiah. So we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be a family. We don't want to be a person who says, okay, well, I'm just going to double down on my sin, double down on the imperfections and the, the, the things in my life that I should repent of. I don't want to double down on that. I want to confess that, repent, turn, and move on. I don't want to be like Adam. You know, hiding behind the tree and then blaming everybody else. I want to come and I want to be like the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me. I know that you inspect me. I know that you inspect, you know, inspect this church. Lord, have mercy on this church. Show us where we are in error. Show us where we need to reform the scriptures. Because this is, this is serious, right? I mean, this is, 
You know what Christ says in the church to the churches that don't repent? I'll remove your lampstand, right? This is very serious. So that's the first thing. And then he just leaves. Verse 12. On the next day, and this gets us into the fig tree, which is another. This too is curious, okay? When they had left Bethany, he became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. Now, when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And, and in verse 21, it's described as a curse. So how do you interpret this? Well, in verse 21, Peter said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse. So what he's doing back here is cursing this fig tree. And again, the question is, why would he curse the fig tree? First of all, okay, number one, to answer some of this, now look what you look what you have here. He found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And you're like, wait a minute, okay, this is the conundrum. If it's not the season for figs, why is he upset that there's no figs? And turned and he turns around and, and blasts the tree. That's a that's a that's that's a conundrum. That's a problem, right? Well, here's here's how it works. Passover season was not a typical season. For edible figs. And that's true enough. So that part's exactly right. Okay, It's not the season for figs. But here's the catch. The way a fig tree works. Is that the leaves. Excuse me. The figs come before the leaves. Think of this. The figs come before the leaves. So if there are leaves. What does that mean? There are figs. That's what he's looking at. Because there are leaves, it means there must be figs. Now, what does this have to do with the temple? What does this have to do with anything, right? Why is Christ cursing this tree? What do you think? He goes to this tree. What is he expecting on this tree? Branches filled with figs. Fruit. Okay? What did he just do in the temple? He went and inspected the temple. What's he expecting to find in the temple? Fruit. Fruit. What's in the temple? No fruit. He goes to this fig tree. He sees it in leaf. What's he expecting to find on the fig tree? Fruit. What does he not find? Fruit. Ah. What's, got, what's Christ's response to this fig tree that's bearing no fruit? Cursing. What's going to happen in this temple structure, this temple system that's bearing no fruit? The curse of God. See how that works? Now we're starting to realize, right? Because here's the thing, right? The leaves conceal or hit the fact that there was no fruit. And this is just how it is. The, remember in the days of Christ, they're looking at the temple and they're saying, Christ, look how glorious this thing is. Look at the stones. They glitter. They're white. And they're polished and they're new and they're magnificent and they're enormous. And this whole structure, the, the way the altar works, you know, you have this, this, this entire system. Remember there was um, something like $2.1 billion in the treasury. I mean, this whole thing is glamorous, it's glorious, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's splendid. But what's it hiding? The fact that there's no fruit. This tree is glorious. This tree has the leaves. This tree has everything. It looks like things should be ripe, but you get closer and it's hiding the fact that there's no fruit. This is like when, when Christ, when others in the scriptures, this people in the prophets, this people honors God with their lips, but their what? Heart is far from me. They go through the motions very well, but their heart is far from me. There is no fruit here. 
The temple, and think of this. I mean, the, is the temple busy with religious activity, religious commerce, busyness, people doing things, people going about and, you know, buying cattle and buying sheep and buying oxen and buying doves and you bring them and they're slaughtered and there's blood everywhere and they're bringing it to the temple and there, there's smoke coming up from the altars everywhere. There's a lot of religious activity, but in the at the end of it, here is Christ and they're going to reject what all the activity should be pointing to. So he's saying it's barren fruit. And again, if you think about, okay, let's bring it in a little and ask ourselves this, what about I mean, what about us? What about us? What about churches? You know, a lot of times churches, they look really good. They have the fancy building. They have the, a lot of times the smoke machines. They have the colored lights. They have the, the state-of-the-art sound system. They have all the media. They have all the flash. They have the, you know, everything. Fancy watches and fancy, fancy everything. They have that, right? And you're like, man, this. look at this. Look at this church. I remember going through Houston. And you, you look out the side of the window, there's Joel Osteen, like 200 feet tall on this banner. You're like, why would they, oh, but, and then you realize this is an, an enormous church right in the center of downtown Houston. And it looks glorious. And you go in there and you've, you've, got, you've seen pictures. It looks like, like the Dallas Cowboy football stadium. What a church, right? It's magnificent. It's glorious. We know there's no fruit though. Where's the fruit? See that? So it's very similar. There's, there's, you know, there's different ways. Look at, look at how easy is it? And here's the other thing. Let's, I mean, I don't think any of us are, that's probably not hitting close to home, you know, but what about this? I think this will, what about, let's say in the reformed world, you know, we all know our catechism and we know what the chief end of man is. And we read John Calvin and we, you know, we, we make sure we come to church and we make sure all of this, right? We, we do all this stuff. And how many times reform people, how many reform people are in hell today? How many people have read through Calvin's Institutes and today they're in hell? That, that is a thing, right? That's a, that's a thing that happens. Why? Because, well, on the outside, they're saying all the right thing. They have all the right knowledge. They're doing this. But when you start to, and this is, again, I mean, it's not like... You know, you, this is one of those things. You ever heard of fruit check? You know, where it's like, hey, you need a fruit check. You need a, and it's like, okay, what are the motives? What are, what are, what are, have, have our hearts been changed? Uh, have, have, have we been changed as far as how, how we approach life? Is Christ really what motivates us? Because again, I mean, these Pharisees, they had all the right answers. The Pharisees knew, the, the scribes knew the Bible backwards and forwards. The devil knows the Bible backwards and forwards. And it's like, there's something, there's something missing though. What's missing? Well, there's no, there's no heart religion, man. There's no, there's no affection for Christ. There's no love for Christ. There's no genuine hatred for sin. There's no love for neighbor, love for lost people. Recognizing apart from God's grace, I would be just like any of these wicked people that I look around and I, I say, man, how can they act this way, right? That's what he's saying. There's a difference between being, and I don't, you know, I hate when people use the dichotomy like, well, don't, it's, it's about a relationship, not a religion. And that's not true because James says Christianity is a religion. But there's a difference between a false religion and a true religion. And there's a difference between like a heart kind of faith and a going through the motions religiosity kind of thing. And that's what he's looking at here. He's looking at this temple structure and he realizes there's a lot of religion going on here. There's a lot of, there's a lot of 
uh, people going through the motion. There's a lot of right answers being said, but at the end of the day, do they actually know what it's all about? Do they actually love Christ? Do they follow Christ? Do they, do they have any desire for Christ, for God, or is it just going through the motions? And now some people, for some people who are, and I do want to step back because for some people who are bringing sacrifices, let's take like Mary. I mean, this is an obvious one, right? For some people who are bringing sacrifices and offerings, they are doing it with right intention. Abraham, when he when they were doing that, this was before Moses, obviously, but Abraham, there, were, there would be times when Abraham is building an altar to God out of the right motive. Moses was offering sacrifices with the right motive. So it's not like... Oh, they're bad because they offer sacrifices. It's the fact that for the vast majority of people, it does seem in the days of Christ, it does seem to be the case that they are not offering with the right intention, with the right motive. And especially the priestly class, especially the Pharisees, especially the scribes, especially the, the opponents of Christ. And that's what he's looking at. And that's why in verse 14, he says what? He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He curses them. Cursed. And now we understand why. Victor of Antioch, the oldest commentary out there on Mark. The oldest, think of this, the oldest commentary. says, Jesus used the fig tree to set forth the judgment that was about to fall on Jerusalem. Okay, And this is, especially as we get deeper into Mark, we're going to see this more and more. This, 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 this action that God is going to take on the temple structure in Jerusalem. And, you know, again, I mean, is this, is, this, is this right? Think of this. The Messiah comes and what do they do? They reject him. Okay. If you're looking at the life of Christ, because here, look at verse 19. This will, this will I mean, because it doesn't just, in, at verse 19. So by the time we get to verse 19, Christ has already cursed the fig tree, gone into the temple, and then flips the tables and everything, which we'll see later. Then he goes back out of Jerusalem, sleeps, wakes up, and in the morning, the next morning, verse 20, as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. So this is a miracle of destruction. What does that mean? When, because again, the emphasis here, Mark is not just giving us this information for nothing. He's saying it was withered from the roots up. What is he talking about? He's talking about the totality of its destruction. It is completely eviscerated, wiped out, wiped off the face of the earth. It has no purpose, no use anymore. And when you look at what happens in the days of AD 70, everything they have, the temple, the sacrificial system, and the priesthood are all destroyed. Think how amazing this is, man. This is something I can't figure out. You talk to a practicing Jew and you're like, dude, how do you not see this, right? Jesus forecasted exactly what was to take place to the temple. And that's exactly what happened. It's completely wiped off the face of the earth. There is no temple. There, are, there is no priesthood anymore. And there are no sacrifices being offered anymore. It's exactly what Christ was talking about. This thing is absolutely withered from the root up. It's completely wiped out. What does Christ say in other places? He says about the temple, I will destroy this temple. Made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. What's he talking about? Christ is the temple. We're going to wipe this one off the face of the earth. Why? Because Christ is the temple. 
We're going to get rid of all the sacrifices. Why? Because the sacrifices pointed to Christ, what his sacrifice was going to do. Once he himself is sacrificed on the cross, the other sacrifices become superfluous. They become outdated. They become unnecessary. Why? Because you have the one sacrifice. It talks about this in Hebrews 9 and 10. There's only one sacrifice that's been made for all time in the person of Christ. So you don't need sacrifices. You don't need a temple. And why don't you need the priesthood anymore? Scriptures tell us. We have a, let me read a few verses here. Hebrews 8. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. Wait a minute. If you live in the days of Christ, man, the high priest was it. I mean, he was the man that ran everything. Now he's no longer, right? By the time you get to this judgment and destruction Hebrews 8, and I would say that even before that, because this is referring to Christ as the high priest even before the destruction, I would say that Hebrews was written before AD 70. That's debatable, but I don't think I don't think it's debatable, but that's my take. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And then chapter 9, 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctified for the cleansing of flesh. Now watch this. And we say this during the assurance of pardon so often. Because if you feel, I mean, look, you're talking about, man, I, I, I feel my conscience is dirty. You feel that way, right? I mean, if you start to examine your life, examine your sin, examine your shortcomings, you feel dirty. I mean, that's, that's, that's true, right? We're looking at it we're like, man. But look at this. This is why this is so glorious. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And it goes on and on. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about how Christ, his blood. This is why, look, our, okay, yes, it's, it's healthy to have a conscience that registers sin. But it's also important to recognize that in Christ, all of our sin has been washed away by the blood of Christ, by his sacrifice by his work, by his person. Every single sin that you have ever committed or ever will commit has been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. Absolutely clean. You are absolutely unblemished. You are spotless. You are robed in Christ's righteousness if you are in Christ. That's why that is so, in a sense, enthralling because we don't deserve this and it's too good to be true because we know how hideous and shameful that guilty conscience feels. But here the Bible is saying no, the blood of Christ, that's what the, you realize, that's the purpose of the sacrifice, right? The purpose, like if, I have a, if, I have a, if I have a guilty conscience in the, under the old covenant administration, what do I do? I take an animal, I bring it to the priest, the priest slaughter the animal, and what is that supposed to do? To help me recognize and understand that through the shedding of blood my sins are cleansed. I'm in right standing with God. That's exactly what Christ has done. 
So the sacrificial system, obsolete. The temple, obsolete. The priesthood, obsolete. That's why this is the totality of destruction as far as him cursing this victory. And that's what he wants the disciples to see, right? This is why Bertrand Russell is out to, out to lunch about everything, but especially this, including this. I mean, these guys, they have, it's like you're, I don't know if it's, I don't know, I mean, that's a rabbit trail. I don't know if it's dispensationalism or what. That, that I, I don't know, but it's very obvious what he's talking about. Okay, here it is. The seriousness of rejecting Christ. So that's what we're seeing here, right? The Israelites were God's, you know, we say people, yeah, but because they were given the covenants, they were they were given the promises. It was through them that the that 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 the Messiah was to come. And guess what God is going to do to these people, man? He's going to wipe them off the map. That's how serious this is. The idea of rejecting Christ. It happened before the time of Christ. It happened before AD 70. It happened when Israel of old, they rebelled against Christ. They rebelled against God. And what does God do? He brings Assyria. God, Assyria comes in and wipes them out. Brings them into exile. Actually, they wipe out Israel. But then the southern kingdom, Judah, remember Babylon comes in, takes uh, Judah into slavery, exile. And then they finally get back and here they are. They're, they're defiled again. And so what's God going to do? He's going to come in and he's going to wipe them out. Here's, and you're like, well, yeah, I see that. But here's the thing. Look, when it comes to when it comes to us, when it comes to America, when it you know a lot of times, look, America is not Israel, right? America and Israel are two different things. We're not the same nation. We understand that, but it is to say, is it not true that any nation that rejects God, that rebels against God, especially considering the light and the revelation and the word of God that certain nations receive, then they turn around? And they, they spit on it and they reject it. You see what God's response is, right? He does come in and absolutely annihilate nations that do this. And of course, we, under, we understand that our nation right now is under God's judgment. And we look at it and we say, rightfully so. That's exactly. But you know what's scary? The judgment hasn't even begun to begin yet, I don't think. I mean, we're just now entering into this period of judgment. Unless, and we know God is merciful. So that's why we're praying for revival. We're praying for God to have mercy on this nation, for God to be kind to his people, to his church. But it goes back to this. Look, when it comes to suffering, okay, was Jeremiah spared the judgment of God in his own day whenever God comes and judges Judah? He was not spared. Jeremiah was a good dude. Jeremiah loved the Lord. He wasn't spared from that. Was Daniel spared? Daniel wasn't spared. He was led into exile. And we look at the judgment to come. That's only just beginning, right? We're like, man, how, what's going to happen? Well, here's the beauty of this, okay? Was Daniel okay? He was okay. Was Jeremiah okay? They were okay. Why? Because they trusted in Christ. Going back to the idea of God inspecting us. God inspecting us as people. God inspecting churches. God inspecting families. Here's the idea here, okay? You know what is the best form of refinement for God's people? Persecution, tribulation, suffering. It's not fun, but that is, historically speaking, and you know in your own life, right? When are the periods in your life when you are closest to the Lord? When you're undergoing trials, when you're going through things. So it's not all bad. 
It's bad, but it's not all bad because here's the thing. God will remember his people in the midst of these lands that he's persecuting. He knows that he has people here. He knows that he has families here, churches here that love him. But sometimes you get caught up in it because we are part of this system that we live in. And so that's the idea here. So when you're looking at the seriousness of rejecting Christ, that's what you're seeing here. If God is not willing to spare even Israel, even the temple structure, if he's not willing to spare that, he is not going to relent when it comes to the corruption and the wickedness of nations like ours. That's what's scary. Or churches, even worse, churches that are proclaiming Christ, that are professing to be Christians, but look more like a Disney World or a shopping mall. I mean, God does not play around with these things. And that's why this is important. And of course, with our own homes as well. But this is why it culminates for all of us, but it culminates in the gospel here. Because here's the thing. In the gospel, what do you have? Look, we don't have... We live in a, just take our own situation. You can go through, I mean, we could, we could just start calling out like, okay, what's, name some sins in our culture. We could start throwing out all kinds of sins, right? All kinds of wickedness going on in the schools and in the, in the government and in dirt, you know, we could go on and on. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this, right? Our hope is not in whether or not the city I live in is being blessed by God or under God's judgment. Now, we want our city blessed by God. That's why we do everything we can to see that happen. But you know where it starts? It starts with God's people being faithful, living out the duties that God has given them to do. That's how it happens. And if there's trial, if there's persecution, if there's tribulation or whatever along the way, so be it. I'm going to do what God has called me to do. We're called to do what God's called me to do. Namely, have faith in Christ, but your hope in Christ, and try to faithfully live out the gospel. That's all. That's what you're called to do. And of course, we all have different vocations, we all have different roles, but that is what we're called to do, right? And in that, right, be a good citizen, do what we can to change things. And we have, you know, we know that we have, and this is part of the gospel mission. But when there's faithfulness to the gospel, the culture changes that way. Culture changes whenever churches and people are faithful to the gospel. That's how this culture changed in, in America, in West Texas, in Eastern New Mexico. This is Comanche country right here. 150 years ago, the spot we're standing on right here was Comanche country. And Comanches were barbaric and they were ruthless and everything else. But what happened? Well, now there's a church here. So changes are in progress. You know, how are we going to change, you know, all these pot shops everywhere? You know, every street has these pot shops. Well, what's going to, well, what the, the church is, as God's people go forth and, and God moving through his people, what happens? Well, these things change. Cultures change. Cities change. The state's going to change. New Mexico is going to, New Mexico, right? With this godless, it's wicked. We're like, well, shoot, man, let's just not do anything about it. Let's just kind of stay in our bubble. And, no. What is it? Be a faithful Christian. That's the hope of the gospel. But what's the alternative? The alternative is faith, faithlessness. And when you see what's going on here in the days of Christ, they're going through the motions, but there's no heart religion. There's no desire for Christ. So here's how we'll end with Isaiah 55. 
Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. And he pardons in the gospel. I mean, that's why it's like the glorious thing about all of this is the fact that, you know, this this structure that Christ cursed the temple complex, the temple structure. I mean, you look at the people there, the priests. We'll see a scribe later on in Mark. We'll see these people in Mark. You see Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that are part of this religious structure. But you know what you have? You have people coming out of that and putting their faith in Christ, putting their hope in Christ, putting their trust in Christ, realizing that all of the temple was about Christ, his blood, his sacrifice. And so as God's people, man, you and I, we cannot live faithful lives to the extent that we want to live. We can't do that. But that's why the beauty of the gospel is, is you're not saved by your faithfulness to the gospel. You're saved because Christ was faithful all the way. Actively loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving his neighbor as himself from the time he was born to the time he died. He was faithful. We are not saved by our faithfulness. We are saved by our trust in Christ because Christ was faithful. That's the hope of the gospel. But in light of the gospel, the response that we should have are people who now should be faithful to Christ, should live this life in light of what he's done for us. That's what the structure, the temple structure, the religious folks, that's what they were not doing. They were not doing that. And that's what we're called to do. So there's good news. And here's the great news. You know who was consigned to a curse in our place? The temple structure is cursed, right? But guess who was cursed in our place so that we'll never be under God's curse? This is what happened. That, that would have happened to us. You know, this judgment on the temple, man, this judgment on, let's say, America or whatever, that would happen to us apart from Christ going to the cross and becoming a curse in our place. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by suffering, by becoming a curse for us. That's the beauty of this. So curse is a very real thing. God curses nations. He curses the temple structure. People are consigned to hell, but by God's grace, because of Christ going to the cross, suffering the pains of hell in our place, we, as God's people, will never experience or taste the judgment, the curse of God. We have peace with God. That's what the Bible says. Now we have peace with God, not curse. Let's pray. Christ, we praise you. We praise you for your love, that you loved you loved us so much that you laid down your life for us. We thank you that, that you were perfectly obedient, that you were perfectly faithful. We thank you for your patience towards your people. We know, oh God, that though you are a God whose eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth, Lord, if you were to mark iniquity, who would stand? Lord, we confess, as you know, that we are prone to sin, prone to wander. But we thank you, O oh God, that you're such a gracious and patient and long-suffering God with your people that you continue to bring us back. You continue to call us back. You continue to give us the grace to, to be drawn to Christ, drawn to the Savior. Lord, thank you for this. Thank you, O oh God, for delivering us from the curse of the law. Lord, we thank you that the sacrificial system has been wiped out, nullified, but we thank you that we still have a sacrifice, a high priest 
the new and living temple. Lord, we thank you that we ourselves are part of that temple. Lord, continue to build your people up, to build your church up. Lord, any areas of life where we need to repent, please put that on our hearts. This church, oh God, give us grace to reform, to do things that are pleasing to you, that you would be glorified and honored. Lord, please give us hearts that are genuine, hearts that are set on Christ, on loving our neighbors, loving each other. Lord, thank you, O Christ, that you've done all of this for your people. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the Lord's Supper.